seated, and for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade, and you are more than welcome to take your kids um, back there now, and for those of you whose kids are staying with us in the service, we love having kids in the service, and like I said, uh, you're more than welcome to take advantage of the kids' bulletin that we have so that they can follow along with us. Uh, we have been reading through our statement of faith, our, our confession, over the last several months, and we've been camped out in chapter 3 of the confession here for the last few weeks, and this morning we are on paragraph 5 of chapter 3 of our confession, which relates to the decree of our triune God. It says this, Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world, was laid according to His eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will hath chosen in Christ into everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature, in us, as a condition or cause moving Him thereunto. And so our salvation again is secure, not because God looked and saw that we um, would do something to motivate Him setting His affections on us before the foundation of the world. But God chose us in Christ according to His unchanging good character. And that's what makes our salvation so secure. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2 is where we are. And we're going to finish out, Lord willing, chapter 2 next week. And this morning we're going to look at this issue of feasting and fasting uh, in uh, a bit of a, I think we can maybe call this a dispute or, or maybe just a uh, genuine curiosity as we'll see here this morning as to why the disciples of Jesus weren't observing the fasting uh, protocols, if you will, that the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist uh, were observing. And uh, in, in this, our overarching Um, uh, purpose, our aim, the target, if you will, is for us to walk away seeing that we must feast, we must be a people as Christians who feast on Christ Jesus spiritually uh, for all of our lives, that He's our very sustenance. And so just kind of hold that in your heads this morning as we work through this text. And so I'm going to read verses 18 and go to verse 22. And just by way of, uh, if you want to examine this passage further, uh, these accounts are also in Mark or in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 14 to 17, and you'll see this account recorded as well in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 33 to 39. And so you can, you can look at their accounts of this passage of Scripture as well. But allow me to read this, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to work through our text uh, by God's grace together this morning. So the Word of the Lord says this, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, 
Or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. God, we thank you for your word. Again, Lord, um, not just that you inspired it, and we thank you that you inspired it, God, but that also you've preserved it, Lord, that there has been providential care and guidance that has gone on into the preservation of your word so that we can sit here and have confidence that what we read was breathed out by you. And so, Lord, help us to look this morning with eyes of faith. Help us to be transformed by your spirit living in us, God. God, for those that aren't saved that are here this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause them to repent of sin and, and feast. Join us in feasting on Jesus Christ. And we love you and give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's, it's in our text this morning uh, that, that we have the, the first... At least two, uh, maybe you could consider the bridegroom language to be a type of, of parable, but, um, but most scholars would agree that at least two parables, our first two parables recorded uh, by John Mark here in, in the Gospel of Mark, and, and those that were present for these two parables that conclude this passage, okay, we see in verses 21 and 22, the people that were present primarily are those followers, our, te- our text says, those disciples, both of John the Baptist, okay, and also the disciples of the Pharisees, who, who we've already seen a consistent collision, if you will, between Christ and between the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But here the focal point seems to be their disciples, right, that are following the dominant teachings, both of John the Baptist and of the Pharisees, uh, questioning why... Um, uh, Christ's followers are not observing, again, this fasting protocol. And, and this is the first time that we see John the Baptist's followers included in a, in a debate, if you will, with, with Christ and in, in, in a, a bit of a, a conflict maybe with Christ's disciples. But remember where we are in the ministry of Jesus Christ. At this stage in the game, John the Baptist, he, he's been arrested, and just a little bit of time has passed from that, but we saw in chapter 1, verse 14, that John the Baptist had been arrested. He uh, was either on his way to be executed, or he had been executed, already executed, but his disciples would have outlasted his life. Okay, His followers would have outlasted his life and his ministry. And John's ministry, if you remember back, was one of pointing toward Jesus who he affirmed as the Messiah. Okay, And so we have clear evidence just one chapter earlier of John the Baptist saying that Christ is the fulfillment of the long-awaited for Messiah, that it is Christ who has brought with him this kingdom that John the Baptist was prophesying about. However, that message that Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the coming of the kingdom of God at this stage in the game, at this stage in Jesus' ministry, which again is still early on, had it made its way to all of those that had received the baptism of John. 
Okay, people would come out to the wilderness to be baptized by John, and then they would go back uh, kind of to the regular rhythms of their lives for the most part. Okay, and so not, not everyone at this stage in the game had the most up-to-date news, if you will, that Jesus was who John was preaching about. In fact, we even see after the death of Christ, the Apostle Paul was evangelizing the disciples of John. If you look at with me just quickly at, uh, at Acts chapter 19, we just look at verses 1 to 5. It says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And this is how they answer. Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and then Paul gives, fills in the blank for them. That is on Christ Jesus. The text says, verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so even after the death of Jesus, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, even after, uh, even after his death, the disciples of John, they're still being converted to Christ Jesus. News is still spreading that Jesus is the fulfillment of John the Baptist's preaching ministry. Okay, so, so in our text, it, it should be understandable that we have a bit of a debate, some questioning, again, if you will, with some of the followers of John the Baptist and Christ. And, and, and then we also have what we would probably consider to be the usual suspects. Right? We have the disciples of these religious leaders that were called the Pharisees. And, and the reason we have seen and we will continue to see as we go through the Gospel of Mark, this continuous interaction with Jesus and with the Pharisees in particular is because of, honestly, how much they had in common as it related to their view of the Torah, which, kids, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's how much they had in common with the Torah how much they had in common even with their rhythms of worship, going to the synagogues on the Sabbath. Right? So th there was this, at least this, this common heritage, if you will, this common orthodoxy between the disciples of John the Baptist, the disciples of the Pharisees, and the disciples of Jesus. And again, that, that thread that would have connected them would be the first five books of the Old Testament. So they, they saw each other because of this, this what they, because of what they had in common, they saw each other more uh, than we perhaps even realize so far removed from this context. Now, even though they had things in common and maybe had many things in common, they didn't have the most important thing in common. Right? They didn't have uh, uh, in common Christ, confessing Christ as God, confessing Christ as, as the Messiah, the long-awaited for Messiah. And that's a big gap. Right? That's the most important gap. That's, what, that's the separation between everlasting life and everlasting damnation, right? is Christ. And we'll see even in chapter 3 that the gap there is so 
broad between the Pharisees and perhaps even the Pharisee, the disciples of the Pharisees, that the gap is so large that the Pharisees will begin to plot the death of Jesus in chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so Jesus here in our text and his disciples, they're being questioned. And they're being questioned for not abiding by uh, a tradition of man. And, and tradition of man is, is a phrase that, that I'm using because Mark uses it in Mark chapter 7. And, and these traditions, these traditions of man, these traditions of men, while in and of themselves are not wrong, okay, I, we don't need to walk away and, and say, oh, a tradition across the board is just wrong. That would be the wrong way to look at this. But they did come from, these particular traditions, they came from sort of legalistic applications of the Torah. And oftentimes, these traditions of man, they were treated practically with the same status as God's revelation. And these traditions were old to the Pharisees and to the disciples of the Pharisees, but in the grand scheme of things, even traditions that we hold to are even very young traditions, relatively new traditions. The Pharisaical sect at this time, at the time of Christ, was only about 200 years old. And so in the grand scheme of things, these traditions are, are young. But we see this collision here. It, it comes because of, of many of the things that this group has in common, but they're far apart in a more significant way. How they viewed and embraced, did not embrace Christ. And the evidence for just how far apart they were in our text this morning is found in this question, this debate surrounding fasting and feasting. And, and in a way that only Christ can do, he sinks below the kind of external conflict and these questions, and he addresses the heart. And, and so we're going to look at uh, the, the, the significance of this question, this debate, and we're going to look at it by asking three questions. And the first question we're going to ask is, why were the disciples of John and the Pharisees fasting? Why were they fasting in the first place? Okay? The second question we're going to ask is, why were the disciples of Jesus, and maybe even Jesus himself, why were they not fasting? Okay? Which is, the, again, the point of potential conflict that we see here in our text. And then the third and final question that we're going to ask is, what is the meaning of the two parables that Jesus gives in this section. So let's, let's look at the first question together. And, and in order to begin to answer that or wrestle with it, look with me at verse 18 again. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and they said to him, they said to Christ, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so... So plainly in our text, okay, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, plainly, they're fasting. And, and the first thing we need to note again is that uh, there's nothing wrong with them fasting in and of itself. Okay, we could question their motives in the sense that this fast seemed to be public. We could question their motives in the sense that uh, it seemed to bother them that the disciples of Jesus were not fasting like they were. I think that would be some a fair assessment of what's going on here but the actual fast itself it's not wrong and if it were to be applied correctly it could be glorifying to god now it's specifically the disciples of john the baptist not the disciples of the pharisees that ask christ why his disciples aren't following suit 
Matthew tells us, he identifies, and we don't see that identified by Mark, but we see, that identi- we see them identified by Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. And because it's John's disciples, specifically John the Baptist's disciples, we could look at this text and say that they were legitimately curious as to why Jesus and his disciples didn't hold to the acceptable orthodoxy, if you will. Christ and his disciples, they they weren't breaking Levitical law here by not fasting. So this fast isn't related for those of you that have heard of the Day of Atonement or or maybe more uh, uh, popular, uh, known known better as uh, Yom Kippur. That's that's not what what Christ and his disciples are breaking. In Levitical law, it was required they fast once a year at the Day of Atonement. Of atonement, and that's not that's not what's going on in our text this morning. Right at this time, there is a, again just this understood fasting protocol that that was beyond this once a year Levitical requirement, and this fasting protocol seemed to be something that was observed by the conservative uh, religious people of the day, the Orthodox, if you will. So we're dealing with the tradition. And this is where the the problem kind of begins to occur. We're dealing with a tradition that has been elevated, seemingly, potentially, to thus saith the Lord. So the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they're looking and they're questioning and, and they're asking why it is that the disciples of Jesus are not observing this fasting schedule according to the traditions of man. Now you may be asking, what what's fasting? What, what exactly is fasting? What would it have signified? What does it even signify now? Rabbis, Jewish rabbis called fasting an affliction of the soul is, is one of the ways in which it's been defined. It relates historically to abstaining from food and to abstaining from drink, which fits our particular context well. That understanding fits our context well. It's also closely associated with mourning, which would also fit our text well. The very act of fasting, of mourning, it's an act of worship in which the person that's fasting is declaring their need to be delivered. Okay, They're declaring through fasting their need to be delivered. Right? We fast as we seek deliverance, as we seek an answer to our lament, as we seek an answer to... Um, to our grief, to our suffering, to our trials, right? We fast to, to make more time for prayer, right? To pray to the Lord about these issues in which we are burdened about, right? And that's what the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are supposedly doing, right? If they're, if they're committed to the Torah here, if they have a biblical understanding of fasting, and there's no reason why we should think that they don't have a biblical understanding, understanding of fasting, then they're asking God in this fast for deliverance. That's what, they're, that's what they're doing. That's why they're fasting. And this is significant for us because if we're connecting things well, right, we would remember that John the Baptist preached, again, the coming of the kingdom of God. Right? His very disciples here could be fasting because they're longing for that kingdom that John the Baptist preached was coming. Right? This fasting for them could be forward-looking, 
a plea, if you will, that God would deliver, a plea that God would bring His kingdom. Why would the disciples of Jesus not engage with something like that? And so this debate, this questioning here, it's complex. Right? On the one hand, certainly it could be about traditions of man, it could be about appearing orthodox, maybe even judging those who seem out of step, and something could be said of all of that. Right? It could be legitimate curiosity based on who it is that's asking the question. But there's something primarily more significant going on. It's related to what's underneath the fasting. This plea for deliverance. Fasting in anticipation and in longing for God's kingdom. And us seeing that, it gets us to the second question and even some ways in which we should be applying this passage of Scripture to our lives. The second question is why were the disciples of Jesus feasting and not fasting? And so if fasting is the longing here for the kingdom of God, the longing to be delivered, and perhaps the answer to this question becomes more obvious to us. Look back at the text with me. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, here's how He answers, here's how He begins to answer the question. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Now, again, this could be maybe considered a type of parable, a third parable in this text because the, the, the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, they don't realize this, but Jesus is answering their fasting question. Or better put, Jesus is telling them that he is the answer to their fast. Right? That the answer to their fast, the answer for deliverance, is standing in front of them, flesh and blood. Right? This bridegroom language here, Jesus calling himself the bridegroom, which is what we see happening here in this text. Now, whether or not this was clear to the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, I'm not sure. But it is a, a clear claim to divinity, a clear answer to the question, why don't your disciples fast? We see in his calling himself the bridegroom, that this is an, an affirmation of sorts that God has answered that request of the fast already. Right? He's delivered on that promise already. And a promise that, that's pervasive in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 54 Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Ezekiel 16, verses 6-8 says, And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your old blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love, so I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. Sort of marriage language here that God through Ezekiel is prophesying about. 
What about this passage of Scripture as well? Hosea may have come to your mind. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Right, Jesus in our text this morning, there's reason to be comforted and encouraged by this. He's saying, I'm the husband. Right? I'm, I've the betrothed. I'm, I'm engaged to you. I'm wedded to you. I'm the keeper of the covenant. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm the God of the whole earth. And in light of that, why would you fast for deliverance? Why would you fast for what's already been answered? Why fast for what God has already done? Again, remember John the Baptist. Again, he's, he preached that the kingdom of God was coming. And Jesus says and right after the arrest of John the Baptist. And we see that in, in chapter 1 verse 14. The very next verse, verse 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And for us, just as it was for Christ's disciples and John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisee, the issue in our text this morning between fasting and feasting is a matter of life and death. Right? The disciples are feasting because they know that God has answered. And that the answer to deliverance is Jesus Christ alone. Now is not the time for fasting. And Christ, in giving this bridegroom and, and feasting illustration, he, he strikes beneath the, the very external act of feasting and fasting. And again, He targets the heart of man. Right? We, as Christians, must feast. The redeemed must feast. We must feast or we're going to die. Right? That's true of our physical bodies, yes. But what Jesus is bringing into focus for us is our spiritual condition. Now we have to feast on Christ who's the bread of life. John 6, verses 48 to 51. We have to drink Christ who's the fountain of life. John chapter 4, verse 14. Right, we're reminded of this each and every Lord's Day when we come to the table. Right, it's at the Lord's table that we, we spiritually feast on Christ and we declare Him in the very act of partaking of a supper, we declare Him to be the sustenance of our very souls. Right? We declare Him to be sufficient. We declare Him to be our portion. Right? It's Christ who said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in Him. John six fifty four. To 56. Christ is, is being literal here in the sense that He gave His body for us on the cross, but He's speaking here of our spiritual feasting. We have to spiritually feast on Jesus. Right? This is a matter of eternal life for us. And the disciples not fasting, Jesus' disciples not fasting like the Pharisees' disciples or like John's disciples is an even greater act of worship than their fasting. The feasting was more glorifying to God than the fasting. 
What seemed like gluttony to these religious people was acceptable to God, and what seemed like virtuous self-denial was rejected by God. The physical feasting of Jesus' disciples, them actually eating food, it represented a spiritual feasting for them on their bridegroom who was with them. And we, like the disciples of Jesus, we have to feast on Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. And how do we do this? Now, that may be a question that you're asking this morning. Where do, where do you start? Where do you start? Right? Practically speaking, I just quickly want to give you, I want to give you a few ways. And for those of you that have been in church life for any length of time, this would be review to you. But I would even say those of us that are familiar with this, we, come, we, we become desensitized often to what's familiar to us. Right? And so we need to look at this with eyes of faith. We need to look at this with a renewed tenderness. Right? The first way that I would give you is that we need to engage, actively engage in, in the assembly, in gathered worship, in corporate worship. This should be a regular part of our lives. I know one pastor that talks about being connected to a local church and building your life around that local church. But as we gather each and every Lord's Day, we need to seek by the Spirit of God living in us to be genuinely engaged, prayerfully engaged, humbly engaged, faithfully engaged. We need to seek to be attentive Open Bibles. Right? This is the ordinary way that God grows us, that God shapes us, that He conforms us and builds us for eternity. This is the dress rehearsal for when God in Christ returns for His bride, the church. Because, and this is a dress rehearsal for what we're going to be doing for all eternity. So this is our ordinary and regular way in which we feast spiritually on Christ Jesus. Another practical way in which we feast on Christ is by feasting on His Word. And to get even more specific, a good way to feast on His Word is by memorizing the Word of God. Right? Internalizing it, digesting it. Memorization really is a bridge to meditating on the Word. And if all of the Word testifies in total to Christ Jesus, then internalizing the Word is internalizing Christ. It's an arrow sign pointing us to the final Word of God. So memorize Scripture. Three, pray regularly. Speak to the God who sought you and saved you in Jesus Christ, knowing that He hears you because Christ is sufficient. Speak to Him. A fourth way, so put to death the deeds of the flesh. Puritan Thomas Watson, he talks about... Uh, Overcoming sin, he uses the phrase a perpetual fast, which I thought was appropriate for us this morning considering we're talking about fasting. And we're never going to be sinless this side of eternity, but we should be striving by the Holy Spirit living in us to, to perpetually fast for sin as we, through the Word of God, see clearer, Lord's day by Lord's day, just how treasonous sin is against God and how genuinely bad it is for us. And so we feast on Christ and at the same time, a result of that is 
fasting increasingly from sin. So engaging with corporate worship, memorizing Scripture, which leads to meditation, which also, by the way, is an on-ramp to, to prayer. We pray regularly, and we seek to perpetually fast from sin, knowing that we'll finally be delivered from sin when God in Christ returns and we receive these glorified bodies. Now there's a part of this text that I haven't addressed which kind of gets us into God in Christ returning. And it was that Jesus said there will be a time for fasting in the text. That there was going to be a time for fasting for the, His disciples. There's a time for fasting for us even now. Go back to that text just for a moment. Verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And Jesus is alluding here, I think, to his crucifixion, right, his death, his, his burial, and then eventually his, his ascension. Right? God, or Christ, he, he brought his kingdom with him, and he acquired for us forgiveness of our sins. Acquired for us true reconciliation with God. And He did that in, in His first advent. But we long for the day. We pray for the day. We fast for the day when all the bad stuff, the remaining lingering bad stuff that seems so pervasive in our society, we long for the day when that will be reversed. We long for the day in which we'll be finally redeemed and when we'll be physically reunited with King Jesus. Right? What we're waiting for, it's summed up well for us in Revelation 21. We sang bits and pieces of, of Revelation just a moment ago with that last song, but chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, John sums it up this way. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is the church. Right? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? It's that language again. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them, and they will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain for the former things will have passed away. And we certainly long for those former things to pass away. And so we ask ourselves some, some questions in response to that. And are you ready for this world to be ultimately transformed? And are you ready for the bride of Christ to be physically reunited with her bridegroom, Jesus are you ready for God to dwell with us again? Are you looking forward to worshiping Him without any tears of sorrow, without death? And are you ready for everything the curse has touched to be undone? As, as, as we spiritually feast on Christ, fasting in the biblical sense is done in anticipation for the second advent of Jesus Christ. And that's appropriate. And we fast with a certainty that Jesus came and fulfilled God's promise to us in the first advent. So will He return. 
as promised, for His second advent. And what awaits in that second advent is glorious because Christ is glorious. Question three. What's the meaning of the two parables? What's the meaning of the, the, the two parables that Jesus mentions or teaches us? Right? In, in, the, in these two parables, they, they do, you may be looking at them and wondering, does this connect? How does this connect? And they do connect to the situation that we've been looking at this morning. And Christ, here he, he's teaching the disciples of John, he's teaching the disciples of the Pharisees a very important lesson, and, lesson, and he's teaching us that very same lesson. So look back at the text with me one more time. Verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Okay, one commentator sums it up this way. I think he sums it up well. He says, in this context... The meaning of these sayings is quite specific. If Jesus' disciples were to pursue the Pharisaic practice or continue to emulate the Baptist, okay, John the Baptist, they would be like people who put a new piece of cloth on an old garment or who pour new wine into old skins. The practice of John's disciples was oriented to preparation for the coming of the kingdom, especially in this aspect of judgment. That's why they fast. Jesus, on the other hand, came proclaiming that the time was fulfilled and it's His presence which is the decisive element of fulfillment. The behavior of His disciples reflect the joyful certainty of the breaking in of the time of salvation. They experience the joy of the kingdom because they belong to Him. The time of the bridegroom signals the passing of the old and the coming of the new. In other words, the disciples of Jesus could not live as if the Messiah hadn't come. The, The disciples of Jesus could not live as if the Messiah had not come. Right? That's how the Pharisees and their disciples were living. That's how John's disciples were living who had yet to embrace Christ as Lord. And I, again, this isn't a matter, just as if we're forgetting, this isn't a matter of Christ and His disciples breaking Levitical law. This is related to traditions of man that we see here. And while there's a lot that could be said of all of this, what I want to do is just focus just for a couple of more minutes just on the bigger picture here. And the bigger picture for us to see in these two parables is the reality that once you've tasted of the Lord, meaning once you have encountered Christ and you belong to Him, okay, you can't pretend that you haven't. Okay, you can't pretend that you haven't. And this reality should be ever-increasing in our lives. It should be truer of, of us today than it was of us yesterday. We should be growing as Christians and seeing more and more, again with each passing Lord's Day, that Christ isn't an accessory that we just tack on to our lives. We should be growing in our conviction and in our submission to Christ over everything in our lives. We're in Christ. He owns us. He owns every part of us. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 
to 20, the Apostle Paul rebuking the church of Corinth for sexual immorality in that passage. They're being who they're not. Right? We belong body and soul to the Lord. Right? If Christ in our parables this morning is the new one, if He's the new cloth, and He is, then what He's telling us through this, this parable or these two parables is that He does away with the old. Christ puts away the old. Right? Christ does not get along with the old man. Right? He doesn't get along with the old man because the old man was at war with him. The old man was at war with everything good and everything true and everything beautiful. In other words, our old man, the old person, was not neutral but corrupt, waging cosmic war. And just as the old cloth must pull away from the new, and just as the new wine will burst the old wineskin, so too must the old man be put away because of Christ. Christ has changed us. And He is by His Spirit changing us day by day as we live in His joy. And as we abide in Him and are continually changed by Him, we anticipate, we look forward to the day in which we finally receive a conformed body, conformed ultimately to the image of Jesus Christ, a truly new body, a glorified body. And Christ, He makes everything new. He makes everything new, and that includes us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So a few takeaways for us this morning that are in your bulletin. Number one is this. We're new creatures in Christ, and we must never re-yoke ourselves to the old man who's dead and is dying. Okay, we are new creatures in Christ. We must never re-yoke ourselves to the old man who is dead and is dying. Secondly, do not confuse preference and traditions with the commands from God with commands from God. Traditions are good servants and terrible masters. Three, fasting as worship is good for us as we long for Christ to return, as we long for the second advent. And then last, we must feast on Christ. And we do this as we intentionally gather for worship each Lord's Day, as we spend time in Scripture, as we speak to Him through prayer and as we fast by His grace from our personal, our, our particular sins. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this time that we've had together in Your Word. <clears throat> and we ask that You would use it, Lord, to continually change us and sanctify us. And thank You, God, for this time together. And we love you, and we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.